Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Generally Casual. I'm your co-host, Michael, and joined with me today is... Richard and Corey! Yeah, you got me. Uh, And we have brought back our special history man, Nathan. He's the expert. Well, by comparison to us. Yeah, there we go. Hi, Nathan. Hello. Hello! There he is. Um, So today's episode is all about mythology. And funny enough, we actually did some pre-research on this and then decided to completely change our minds and go with all different types of stories from uh, mythological cultures. And then we picked one story from there and then we're going to talk about a little bit about how these stories are conceived um, in those cultures. Yes. Uh, quickly, say what you did. Uh, so I did Greek mythology because it's the first story that popped into my head. And Greek mythology is cool. I did Egyptian mythology because originally I thought it was really cool. And then I found out it was really super complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... I was planning to do this for a while, but because Japanese mythology is sometimes very confusing and all over the place, I wasn't going to do it. But I was like, oh, well, I know some some uh, gods and goddesses from there. So I decided to go with Japanese mythology. <laughs> and Nathan. And me live to go with indigenous to the Great Basin area of Utah and they, Colorado, so they have a pretty interesting cool. story. Well, I'm excited to hear all about these. Um, I would probably say, out of all of these, probably Greek mythology is the most popular, mm-hmm. at least more well known, the most mainstream knowledgeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it tends to tie more into modern day um, things a lot more easily because a lot of our stuff has descended from Greek or Latin, yeah, uh, roots. So, yeah. Um. Yeah. I. I wish. I. I wish Japanese mythology and Native American mythology were more popular, especially Native American mythology. So you figure that you people who live in the United States should know a lot about it. <laughs> I think it went actually through kind of a more popularized phase in like the '90s, and like it was more stylized. So like their, um, like Arizona esque, you know. Mexi, along with like Native American designs and things like that. That was more big in the like early late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. So I don't think the mythology caught on as much, but more or less the symbology and kind of cultural stuff did more. Yeah, I just wish it was more popular. I feel like if you live a place, you should know a lot about the place. You would assume, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and for me personally, Egyptian mythology was always one I wanted to know about, more about, but like, you're right. That's complicated. It is. <laughs> There's a billion gods. <laughs> so it's like, okay, they all do something different. Okay. Mr. Popular, why don't you get us, uh, started? Tell us a little bit about Greek mythology. Mainstream well, core. Before we hit there, uh, I think we should talk about the definitions of myth. Uh, oh yeah. Mythologies. That's true. Yeah. I probably should yeah. say that mythology first. is the study of myths. That's technically yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, I win. <laughs> <laughs> um, so mythology is actually a collection of myths, especially one belonging to a particular religious or cultural tradition. And myth is a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining some natural or social phenomenon and typically involving supernatural beings or events. Yeah. Thanks, Corey, for roping us back there. Got to remember it. Um, So what's interesting about Greek mythology is that a lot of people tend to think of it as almost like a religion. Like everyone of that era believed in all the gods and all that kind of stuff. Um, But funnily enough, with Greek mythology, it was more of a way of tying um, nature and the things that would happen naturally in the course of someone's life into a way that people would understand or would be able to learn something from the myth itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot, a lot of um, ways of instilling like a good conscience in people of like doing the right thing would come from either their heroes and them performing heroic deeds or uh, like the story that I'm going to tell today about uh 
a bad person being punished mm. and why they were being punished. Do you know where we have picked up most of Greek stories from? Like where they were told or how they were told? Uh, I mean, so a how, lot of it... How did they get to modern day, basically? It's like, a lot of them were orally told. Mm. Um, but then we have a lot of um, historical fi- figures like Homer, uh, Homer's Odysseys, a really big one um, where he would write down his stories. So a lot of it was written. Um, and it's all very interpretive. So it's like what people had thought of these gods, what they would embody, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it was all, it's all real good, real cool. <laughs> oral. Um, it, it's interesting just because it offers a different way of understanding the world that we don't really have anymore because now um, as long as you have a good head on your shoulders for the most part, it's like, hey, like science tells us this. This is why this happens. If you want to find out more about it, there you go. You can look into it. But yeah. this was Greek mythology is very much like there's something we don't understand, but we need to explain as to why it occurs. And then they would have a story for it. And then like lightning was Zeus throwing his bolts down to the earth, fighting a foe or stuff like that. Um, so it's really interesting. Um, so the story I want to touch on was the myth of Tantalus. Um, and essentially Tantalus was a really, really powerful and rich king. Um, I believe he was actually one of the first humans to be brought into existence on the world. Um, And he was actually the son of Zeus and Pluto, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Um, So the first humans were technically created by gods. So um, them being sons, it seems like it was used in not a direct literal sense, as in, like, they birthed him, but they created. Mm. Um, So he was a really, really famous king who was known for... um, I think he had a couple really, really famous in Greek mythology, like, children. They ended up doing a lot of stuff, but essentially... He was really um, skeptical of the gods and he was kind of jealous of their power and their omnipotence. There we go. That's a difficult word. Um, (laughs) But essentially, um, he decided to test the limits of the gods and he wanted to see how truly powerful they were and all-seeing they were because that was a big thing with Greek mythology was they sit at Olympus and they can see everything that goes on in the world. If you're doing something, they can probably see it. Um, So these first few mortals of the world were invited to go up to Olympus to dine with the gods. So on one particular occasion, Tantalus decided that he would try and see if the gods would know if he tricked them. Um, so essentially he did what all good fathers do and cut up his son <laughs> um, and decided to try and feed it to the gods. Oh, this is that story. Um, okay. <laughs> so essentially uh, the gods didn't dine in it except for one. Um, it was, if I can try and find it. Uh, it was Demeter. Um, oh. sorry, Demeter actually was upset because at the time Persephone, her daughter, had gone missing. Um, and I'm pretty sure Persephone was taken by Hades. Yes, right? correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so Perse- Persephone was missing. So Pe- Pelop, who was the son of Tantalus, was all cut up and in a s- stew or a soup or something, and she ate his shoulder. And eventually the gods found out and were absolutely furious. But what's hilarious um, is that the gods ended up reconstructing the sun. And because uh, Demeter ate the shoulder of the sun, he actually was missing the shoulder. So they made a shoulder out of marble for him. So he had a marble shoulder. Interesting. Um, everything else He's completely so normal. <laughs> um, he couldn't move his shoulder at yeah. all. It was stuck. 
Oh, he no, was really good at playing football. Marble, though. it was Ivory, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah marble, Ivory. Yeah. Yeah. It's both yeah. rich people stuff. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> White stones. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually going to use an excerpt from Homer's Odyssey to describe the punishment, though, because the gods in Greek mythology are very, very famous for either doing really messed up stuff or punishing people in really hideous ways. Um, and there, I believe there are like three really, really famous punishments that Hades dished out. Yeah. And this is actually one of them. Um, one of the more famous punishments that Hades gave out is uh, Sisyphus's trial. Mm-hmm. Sisyphus was essentially um, a guy who tricked Hades into resurrecting him three times. And then eventually he died again, and then Hades gave him the punishment of rolling the boulder up the hill to only slip and then be forced uh, to yeah, go back yeah. to the bottom. Um, so Homer is describing going down into Hades, into hell, and seeing um, these trials. So he described seeing Sisyphus, um, and then he described what Tantalus had to bear as his punishment. So uh, the old man was standing in a pool of water, which nearly reached his chin. And as his thirst drove him to unceasing efforts, uh, but he could never reach the water to drink it. For whenever he stooped in his eagerness to drink, it disappeared. The pool was swallowed up and all there was at his feet was dark earth, which some mysterious power had drained dry. Trees spread their foliage high over the pool and dangled fruits above his head. Pear trees and pomegranates, apple trees in their glo- in, with their glossy burden, sweet figs and luxuriant olives. But whenever the old man made to grasp them in his hands, the wind would toss them up towards the shadowy clouds. So essentially, um, his punishment for uh, his folly was to stand in a giant swampy puddle thing and anytime he got thirsty, he would try and stoop down and the water would disappear. So he couldn't drink. And then anytime he was hungry, he would reach up to grab the fruit off the trees above him. And then the wind would pick up and throw the fruit away from its reach. So um, he was, he could never have what he really wanted. And this is where the origin of the word tantalized comes from. Is tantal- the punishment of tantalus. So he was always tantalized by the fruit or the water, whatever his necessity was, but he could never have it. It was really interesting. Yeah. I like it. I like those stories. Because <laughs> they're always like, hey, don't sacrifice your kids. Sacrifice everything else. <laughs> well, and more or less, it, I've had this discussion before, but Greek myths and lore tend to be a little bit more, even though they're interpretive, they tend to be a bit more literal about everything. They're like, don't do this, or like, this is the god of this, or like things like that. And I think it's maybe because there was so much writing in their society, there was so much kind of fundamentalism within Greek society by comparison to, to Egyptian, mm-hmm. which had virtually nothing. So a lot of what theirs is, is because the language was either in hieroglyphics or then they had this other language and Egyptians believed that writing changed reality. So their, their whole thing was like, we don't want to write stuff down because we're afraid it'll affect everything. Versus <laughs> Greeks, we're like, no, let's write everything down, and because we're they're a lot, we're a lot more ph- philosophical too. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in a sense, so. the Egyptians were right. You write it down, and then it becomes a story that's passed along, and it changes a lot of people. That's lives. true. So it it was it's very interesting being that for me because I had never really previously researched Egyptian mythology to see a massive difference between that and Greek. Yeah, yeah. It's cool seeing like the sheer amount of stories. Like, uh, with Greek mythology, it was very much like there are a lot of gods that you know, but then there's a ton of explanations as to why stuff happened. Whereas it seems like um, Egyptian mythology, it's like there is there's just a god for everything. Well, and that's the thing is it it's more from what I've kind of did in my research. It was more like. They were the god of that because of what they did, not necessarily because, like, uh, as an example, the, one of the gods that was in there, the, 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 like, four or five main gods as part of most of their, their, like, fundamentals is Osiris, Isis, Set, um, and then 
Nef Nef I don't know how to say their name. It's like Nef Nef Nefetis Nef Nefetis. But all, all of them were brothers and sisters. Okay. And so most of their original stories were based off of those and then their sons and or daughters. That's why Horus and all the other gods that you would know is just because it's the family line of, of the original like four or five. Hmm. Um, and from what I saw, and so my story is actually about Osiris and his death, but I thought it was important to kind of preface it to kind of say in their mind, or I guess in the cultural significance, the gods started as regular people and it was due to their um, accomplishments and or whatever that they became gods which was interesting. So I get it as an example, the reason why Osiris is actually held in such high or was held in such high regard is because he was the one who took this savage society of what e Egyptians used to be and then taught them how to basically modernize. He mm -hmm. taught them how to farm. He taught them how to basically be people as opposed to just savage tribal men, um, which was interesting. And so then afterwards he became the king which in, you know, Pharaoh and whatever. And he married his sister, Isis. Like, yeah, that's normal. Yep. Um, and obviously he had a brother, Set, who was jealous of him because he became the king. And there were some other random stories about the other sister apparently fooled him into having sex with her. It was really complicated. But anyway. <laughs> so um, he killed his brother, murdered him. And this is where it gets even more complicated. So as I kind of explained, Egyptian, um, they didn't really like to write things down. So the original lore and stories um, aren't really written down. So there were some modifications to this lore based off of uh, a Greek Plutarch who wrote a book. And so that's what they discovered and they're oh, like Greeks we're gonna base stuff down yeah we're <laughs> gonna base all of our knowledge of this lore based off of a greek who wrote it down because we can't find any of the original lore in the egyptians so there was conflicting stories this whole time i was like oh, i thought plutarch was just some dude i was like oh plutarch is the name of a occupation i no maybe they keep mentioning plutarch. Nathan, do you know what a plutarch is I thought it was Plut the dude. Plutarch is the dude. Yeah. Okay, that's his name. Okay, okay. I was, I got, I got confused right now. I was like, okay, Plutarch's a dude. I was like, wait, he is a Plutarch? No, he is the Plutarch. He is Plutarch. Okay, his name is Plutarch. Okay. Um, but anyway, so in terms of Egyptian lore, there was no real description of how actually Set killed his brother, but in Plutarch's version. He did this whole dastardly thing with like a bunch of conspirators and created this chest that was exactly the size of Osiris. And at this like uh, banquet, he played a game. He said, whoever can fit in this chest perfectly, <laughs> well, I will gift it to you. And of course, Osiris gets into it and then they close it on him and shove him in the river and then he just is trapped in this chest down the river. I'm getting real, like, Loki and Thor vibes from that. that. That's like, the thing. It's like, there, there's a lot of that, like, wait, this sounds familiar. Like, this has happened before. In Egyptian, there's tons of that. Like, a lot of the, even, like, later on, there's a lot of stories that you can see similarities in other cultures and other things like that. Mm. So, I don't know. But anyway, um, Osiris gets sent down the River Nile. And then it ends up going down to a different country where a tree grows around the chest. And the king of that country then says, this is a beautiful tree. I'm going to chop it down and make it as a, um, what are they called? Pylon for my, my palace. Meanwhile, Osiris's wife, obviously depressed from losing her husband, is crying and freaking out. And so she then searches and then eventually finds the chest takes him out and then her she has magical healing powers so she starts to resurrect him basically and kind of get all the stuff together for the uh ritual and apparently then set finds out and is like no 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 you can't do all that so he goes down and then he cuts his brother up into a bunch of different pieces oh good so yet again there's a couple differentiations in the story but 
one of the the key things is they said they separate that set separated him into 42 different pieces and spread him all over the land of Egypt and 42 is actually the amount of provinces that they had in Egypt. Huh. Yeah. One for every province. Oh, how exactly. Nice. And so then Isis even more depressed crying all the time. She goes and finds all the pieces of, of Osiris and yet again a differentiation in some of the stories um she found every piece except for his phallus. Mm. And then others, I guess the original, he they found all the pieces. Apparently, the phallus was eaten by this uh, fish, which then became a cursed fish. So that way, no Egyptians would eat that fish. Yeah, the phallus fish. Probably yeah. for better. It's like Erinxius fish or something ridiculous. Very complicated name. Yeah. So, through that, she was only able to basically half-resurrect him. And then conceived a child based off of that. And that's where Horus came from. Got it. Okay. So the original story must be the true one. <laughs> well, it, that's the thing is technically through both. Yeah. He, they did copulate and she had Horus based off of that. One was he had no phallus and she magically created one for him. And then they copulated. Okay. And then the other one, she found all the pieces and half resurrected him and she obviously that. resurrected the right half. Uh, apparently. <laughs> so, um, yes. But due to him not being able to... He was basically between worlds. And so then became the keeper of the underworld. So he was the one who basically became Hades in terms of Greek reference. And ruled the land of the dead. Now, the main reason why this is so important is because Egyptians very much are... Uh, or culturally around fun- funerary rites, the afterlife, um, a lot of kind of how you live your life then depicted how you would be treated in the afterlife. And because Osiris was such a great king and had this great vision and was kind king and all these other things, they talk about how he, it's similar to how the Greeks, where they had like a plains where you could, if you were good, you would go to this area and live your life and have happiness on these everlasting planes. And then there was another area where you didn't have such a nice time. Um, but yeah, the, the main thing is, is because Osiris was such an influential and kind of the first one, I thought it was interesting that Egyptians had this view of these gods were not really gods. They were humans that did such good things that they ended up kind of ascending past that. Which is interesting. Cause like the whole down the line, Pharaoh's being, associated with gods and pharaohs being considered as gods seems like a very extreme like push from that notion well and they actually mentioned that as part of the osiris lore every single pharaoh after that and the wife of the pharaoh was to be considered reincarnations of osiris and isis oh so that's why they put him in a perfect chest but more or less, that's I, mm. Osiris was also the first one to get mummified as well. That's why that that rite was created as part of that. Huh. When Isis resurrected Osiris, they did mummify him, and Anubis is the one who helped, since he is the god of funerary rites and mummification and all that. Stuff. Very cool. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, when we were talking about this earlier, I was also doing the investigation. We're like, oh, also that's how Greek and Egyptians are tied because of the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, which, that's true. Which is just a big stone that had Egyptian hieroglyphs on it. Um, ancient Greek and... Ancient Egyptian. Yeah. So and, it was like the conversion. Uh, the top was hieroglyphics. Yeah. The middle was... Um, it's like dem- demotic, which is like ancient Egyptian when they were trying to convert over from hieroglyphics into a written language. And then the last one was ancient Greek. Yeah. And then all all three of the messages had the same message on it. That was basically just an announcement of a new king ro- ruling that uh, that area. I think it was, mm-hmm. and so they've used that to as a transcription. Um, even though that part of the it is Rosetta Stone, which means the pillar that it was on broke, so they still have like, luckily, like the middle part basically that had all three languages on it. But I think it was missing most of the hieroglyphics on the, the top, top and a lot of the ancient Greek on the bottom. But it still had enough there that, that they found other copies of the the actual message there so they could do good translations. If I'm not mistaken, to, not to get too sidetracked, but what they did is they used uh, fundamental language basics like 
vowels and consonant type stuff to see consistencies in the languages. So that way they could then translate it easier. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Taught me about the Rosetta Stone. So as a final thing for Egyptians, what I found very interesting is that Greeks, as we just talked about, have God's four things. Mm-hmm. Egyptians don't necessarily have God's four things, even though they label them as God of this, as we kind of explained. Osiris is the keeper of the underworld, but he's not necessarily the God of the underworld. Does that make sense? Like he's the ruler, but he's not a God of He's the best guy this. for this position. Exactly. They <laughs> yeah. they were more like job titles as opposed to like, he doesn't just create wine. That's not what he like. Yeah. They don't have that type of thing. He was an elected official. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's like, it's, it's like if you took Hades and split up his duties into multiple people, like Hades is the ruler of the underworld, but also is the one who it takes a hand in judging at times, in dealing out punishments, in taking heroes and bringing them to Elysian fields. That's exactly. Yeah. Versus like Egyptian, Osiris is the ruler, but then Anubis is the judge. Yeah. And then they have other people who, and even though Anubis does multiple parts because he was kind of in charge of the whole dead thing, it's not like he was ultra powered about everything. He's not an omnipotent. He was just there to be like, this is the weight of your life. This is just the way it is. These are the rules. And you got to abide by those rules because that's what it is. Yeah, and if you're not as good as a feather, you don't get out of here. Exactly. <laughs> They're much more like uh, political and legal about it, the Egyptian gods, whereas the Greek gods are like, hey, you don't want to be on my bad side. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and on a third hand, we have Japanese mythology that uh, uh, it, they have so many different uh, uh, spirits. They, uh, they don't exactly call them um, gods. They call them um, kami, if I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right. Oh, it's up there. Ha ha ha. Yeah, kami, um, which stands for gods or spirits. And so that's the pro- that's the the issue with diving into Japanese mythology is there's so many stories about all the spirits and gods that they have. In fact, the story I'm going to tell you about Izanagi and Izanami, they're the eighth like set of uh, of gods that were created. So we're already like going seven generations down, yeah. and then these are the ones um, who had the biggest hand of making the islands around Japan. Oh, yeah, they and, took a while. Yeah, but luckily for for Japanese stories is that they actually have two concrete um, sources of information, which are just large written books that have stories of ancient tales, mythology, and where we get a lot of the stories today. Um, those two were the Kojiki. Which means uh, butcher the names, butcher the names. Yeah. Um, which means the record of ancient matters, which I think is a very straightforward way to say this is a book with stuff in it. This is a history book. This is and a history or book. A book about <laughs> stories. It's the oldest surviving account of Japanese myths, legend, and history. So it's probably like you know, uh, probably really, really old, and probably put in a place where it's you know sealed and kept away from all hands. Probably. Um, and then the I didn't really investigate the Nihon Shoki, but that's another book that has a lot of stuff in it. And then there we have another divisive statement, kind of like you with Plutarch and the actual ancient scripts, is that um, there's two versions of all of these stories because the two practicing religions are Buddhism and Shinto. Shinto is where a lot of the like straightforward stories come from but then there's the the side buddhist take but so and would based off of what you this does shinto take the more direct approach versus buddhist takes the more spiritual approach uh that's what's hard to determine because i didn't see a lot of buddhist buddhist like influences on the stories i've read Uh. so i feel like maybe buddhism is like a i feel like kind of went hand in hand but they have separate stories Shinto is where a lot of the bases for spirits come from. So Shinto is more supernatural, whereas Buddhist is more spiritual. Correct. Yes. Yeah. That's funny. Because basically, (laughs) like, the Plutarch, to kind of make the comparison, Plutarch was an author, and he obviously wrote stuff, so he made it more like, this is a story. (laughs) We're going to be more fanciful with everything, versus obviously the other ones are like, no, this is what happened. Yeah. And another fun part is that... Greece and Egypt are pretty close together. Yeah. Um, well, Japanese mythology ha- is like 
There's an entire China plus the Middle East in between all of this. Uh, but I want you to kind of look out for any similarities that you might tell uh, between our stories. So we have the story of Izanagi and Izanami. They were the eighth pair of brother and sister gods to appear. There are some other, you know, people who are like, hey, we birthed them gods. For some reason, we keep them as brother-sister combos, and then they get married for some reason. That's the thing. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Osiris marries his sister. We have Izanagi and Izanami who are like, hey, we're now married. Cool. They were gifted, apparently. Oh, no, sorry. They were given the job of doing something with the hellish chaos down on Earth that was just like a primordial ooze of goop. And, like, none of the other gods want to do anything with it. And they were given the task to do something with with the land and the earth that was down there. Um, similarly to Greek and uh, Egyptian, there was a god for land and there was a god for the sea. But oh, they yeah, were just yeah. kind of, like, gooping about and, like, not really forming anything. So they were given a heavenly spear. Uh, and <laughs> they... <laughs> I thought it was funny because they were like, oh, how do we do this? What are we going to do? And they started kind of messing about with it and they, nothing really happened. And then they were like, what if we just stick the spear in and stir it around? And they stuck the spear in and stirred around. And when they pulled it back up, a drop fell off of the tip of the heavenly spear and then formed into the first landmass um, called uh, Onogoro. And so they were cooking. That's what I was like. Supernatural cooking. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, and I like what they say. They say, by standing on the floating bridge of heaven and stirring the primeval ocean with a heavenly jeweled spirit, they've created the first landmass. So when they write it, it sounds really, really cool. So it's just the, like, DIY candy kits? Yeah. <laughs> you just mix it up and goop it a bit? <laughs> you use the highest magical object on the land, and you just stir it around and goop it a bit. I do think it's funny that they used a spear, though. They're like, yeah, let we have weapons, so yeah. let's just use weapons. A spear's just a sharp spatula. Exactly. Um, on top of the, uh, on top of Onogoro, they made the their heavenly palace... Uh, which they started the set about um, creating more life in this area. Um, they had a several unsuccessful offspring, and one of their first one um, is... I didn't write his name down, but he is basically their pseudo-god for fishing. Um, and basically, the way they messed up was that every time they tried, they did the ritual to have kids... Um, this is also might be a call out to all of you out there to not be with your brothers and sisters as <laughs> as your marriage material. Um, that every time that Izanami, the wife, would would greet the husband first and like, oh, oh, what a wonderful boy. Like there was like literal text like that. I'm hoping in Japanese it sounds different. In English, it sounds silly. Um, and then he, the husband would reply with like, oh, what a wonderful woman. And then they would go through this ritual of, you know, procreation. And every time they were like, what's going on? They, their first kid was birthed with no bones or limbs. What? And they just put him on a boat and sent him off to sea. And they're like, oh, this is, get, it, get this out of here. That's how the first ocean creatures were made. <laughs> well, actually, that person apparently figured it out because they were the god of fishing after that. Um, and they went back up to the higher the higher gods were like, what are we doing wrong? It's like, oh, you got to switch. The husband's got to start first and then the wife. Oh. And so after that, they successfully birthed, uh, again, weird, now islands. So she birthed a bunch of islands. <laughs> um, uh, Shikoku, Oki, Kyushu, uh, Shu, uh, Tsushima. And then the last one that was the biggest was Honshu, which that was, I think, the only one out of all of them that I, I my brain was like, oh, I've heard that name before. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, after that, then they started giving birth to kami, so other spirits and gods that, that could go out. Not communists. No, not communists. Um, and through that, they brought out the famous uh, the kami of the sea, the winds, the trees, and the mountains, and other natural manifestations. So we start to get to see that the, the myth of the Japanese culture starts to spiral out from just this higher heaven realm of gods to now they're taking... Uh, parts of nature and assigning them to, to gods. Hmm. Well, um, it seems interesting that they, it sounds as though they created the spirits with the intention of the spirits are there to create natural phenomena. Yes. And that's what was already was kind of like wowing to me is that again, we have seven generations before these two 
And then these two finally come down and stir it up, goop it up, and then, you know, start uh, start making gods and goddesses and spirits to go out and start creating land and life. Yeah, the previous seven generations kind of sound almost useless if they still were dealing with primordial goop at that point. Yeah, well, like, what like, were they doing? Yeah, that was, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly they weren't stirring with a spear. Yeah. So uh, after this, this is where the story starts between the two of them. Um and if you ever know their story, this is where, like, the kind of stereotypical story uh, comes from. Um, after, you know, they figure out the ritual and they start having kids, um, Izanami gives birth to the god of fire. And because the god of fire is white hot when he um, is born, uh, he sears her skin completely and she uh, basically dies. Oh. Um. And so Izanagi was obviously upset, um, held her close, and wept. Uh, but unfortunately, she did path, uh, pass. And there's another part of the story that Izanagi then killed the god, the god of fire, uh, because he, uh, again, a fresh-born kid, uh, because he was upset. Um, and Izanami uh, was sent down to uh, basically their version of hell, um, which. Uh, I think it's very similar to where there's like a a play a place where people are judged. Then there's like a good place and a bad place. But as I describe this, it'll sound a lot more terrifying than any other <laughs> oh. escape. Um, so Izanagi going um, going. Oh no 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 no! I can't let my wife do that. She can't die. I'm gonna go down there and get her out. So he travels through the maze of death, Yomi, um, to rescue her soul. And finally, he finds her, I uh, think, hidden like a decrepit mansion, um, hidden amongst the shadows. And he just goes, come back with me. I, you know, like, I'll take you back. I'll lead you back. I just came down here and you and I can go back to living. Um, sadly, uh, she says, no, I can't. I have already eaten the food of this realm. So now I can't leave. Um, and he's like, no, 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 no. Come, come back with me. We're good. Like, that's fine. I'll just bring you back. And she goes, okay. And that's when Izanagi lights a torch, because obviously Yomi is a land of darkness. And he sees his new wife down in the darkness, who is, I'm trying to find the exact words, there we go, is now appeared as a rotting corpse, hollowed and decayed, and maggot-ridden and foul. So she looks like she died, right? And Izanagi, in disgust, Breaks his vow, the the vow of bringing her back, and runs away. <laughs> so, they run back all the way through the bowels of Yomi, and right before, or right when Izanagi escapes, he takes a big boulder and places it in front of the entrance or exit, so that way she is sealed in there forever and she cannot leave. Because she's chasing him, right? Yes, because she, well, she's like, well, you you just said you would bring me out. Now you see what I look like, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get you. Wow. <laughs> Um, and obviously did that pretty sad, uh, sadly. Um, and there's some, there's some like parts of the story that's like, after that, she vowed to pull souls in, um, like basically everything he made that was new, she would try to kill and take back to Yomi with her. Oh. Yeah. Um, and then here comes another popular part of the story is that afterwards he bathed in the sea to purify himself from the contact with the dead. And as he bathed, a number of deities came into being. And these are the popular ones. So we have the sun goddess Amaterasu was born from his left eye. The moon god Tsukuyomi was born from his right. And the storm god Susana was born from his nose. Which I thought was a little funny. This guy's washing his eyeballs? Yeah, he's, well, he's just taking <laughs> Going a bath. Going to the ocean, you know. Yeah. Saltwater bath where oh, you yeah. clean your eyes and your nose. Yeah, you blow your nose into the sea. Um, And so that's kind of the, the end of the story. And I thought that was a very intense way to go out. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, and it also ends the story with basically giving birth to, like, what the three, I think, most well-known gods or goddesses from Japanese culture in the first place. I see Amaterasu literally all over the place. Uh, Tsukuyami sometimes, but Susano is also one that's very popular and spreads through, like, a ton of Japanese myth. Because they also use the names for very similar... Um, like if they wanted a kids being rambunctious or acting, you know, quick and angry, then they named them, you know, like in similar fashion, Susano is like, you're an angry kid. Uh, funny thing about Susano, 
very quickly uh, upset Izanagi and was banished to Yomi as well to be with his mom. <laughs> and that's the other thing is that they attribute all three of those that their mom is also Izanami. So interesting. Yeah, it was a it was a fun wild ride. Did you notice any strange coincidences with that story? I was gonna say I recognize a couple of uh, Greek uh, type references, such as like Persephone eating the food of the dead. I thought. Uh, that is how she remains there. there yes. Yeah, because she ate a pomegranate yes. from the underworld. Yeah, and then she she got tricked to stay there by eating the pomegranate, and now is stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Did you also notice anything, Corey? No. I'm stupid. Yeah, the Orpheus stuff. Oh, I, was, I was about was to ask pretty... Nathan. I was going to say, Nathan, did you uh, see any similarities? Oh yeah, there were definitely a, a good amount that were um that are in other uh, Greek mythology. Yeah. Lore <laughs> stuff. It's pretty fun. Pretty fun. And so this is something I thought Nathan would find interesting is that it specifically references that they're when the story was created, Greece and Japan had had no interaction at all. Like, there was not really a way that the stories could have moved from one culture to the other at that point. So I was like, whoa, that's very similar to the Greek Orpheus story of him going down there, trying to bring his wife back. Yeah. yeah. Um, Eurydice, yeah. Yeah, Eurydice, and trying to get her out. And then finally, you know, obviously the story ends differently with him turning around and seeing her. And then she goes, and disappears. Yep. Um, so I thought that was a really fun ride for a story to be like, these are very weirdly similar. (laughs) Make a great horror movie. Oh, they absolutely do. Yeah. (laughs) I like the end of it where he's like, oh God, you are a horrifying mess. (laughs) It's a good plot twist. I need to run away from you. Yeah. So there we have the craters of the islands of Japan. Um, and similarly enough, I like Japanese stories because I lead some, the Shinto stories because they're just stories. Like this story isn't like specifically about the creation of anything or about, you know, how things are made or like, you know, why there's lightning in the sky. It's very like, oh, we're just telling a story about people who created people, you know? You know, they created the the kami. They created the gods and spirits that we worship today. And so that's just what they've been through. And it was a very kind of like uh, almost like human story where, you know, like they're suffering mistakes. And they're not just like gods and goddesses who are above everything. They're just experiencing what life is. Is like if they were got like truly gods and goddesses like other cultures portray you know, having a baby wouldn't kill anybody. But kind of like Egyptian, it's like, oh, yeah, that dude can die. It's fine. Oh, yeah, the, <laughs> they're not... It's it's interesting to see that certain in certain uh, cultures, gods are not these omnipotent, crazy beings. That they're just people who knew almost more than other people and kind of were also trying to figure out things as well. So just apparently mating rituals which is very interesting on the japanese side That's super weird yeah. <laughs> yeah. no but, you have to the husband has to greet first and then okay the the what i was re- i really hope is a translation error because uh like it was like their their two greetings to each other was oh hey what a wonderful lady i i i see today and then the other one was like what a wonderful man i see today and i'm like I mean, just imagine people greeting each other like that today. Like that—that uh, that was the back then pickup line, apparently. Yeah. Well, well, it's like like you go be like, oh, let's have a kid, and then then you just like your roommate hears like, <laughs> oh, what a wonderful, <laughs> what a wonderful woman I see today. <laughs> like, ugh, would you just be quiet? <laughs> you just go make a kid quietly keep, over keep there. Keep it down. <laughs> Birth islands on your own time. Uh, Nathan. Uh, how's uh how's uh Ute looking? <laughs> but for my mythology selection selection, I did the Ute peoples. Ute. Um, like I said before, oh, right. I'm not Ute. Yeah, I'm Ute. No, not Ute. Uh, I'm uh I currently live in Utah, so I figured it'd be nice to give some uh native representation from the area. Um, they are indigenous of the Great Basin region, uh, specifically around uh, a good chunk of what is present-day Utah and uh, some of Colorado. Um, 
indigenous religions and mythologies stories uh these are all very oral these are all uh orally passed down stories rather than written down cuz there was really no need kind of no need for a written uh, a, a written word yet so a lot of these a lot of these stories were just uh, just passed down and nothing was really written down until uh western colonization but uh, until then uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah so <laughs> uh, a lot of the stories uh they're they're told at like different times of the year they are uh, all for different different occasions of one's life um different ceremonies uh seasonal stories sometimes where they are told at specific times of the year like these are our winter stories these are uh these are stories we tell in spring and they are relevant to nature so um in a, in a thing called placemaking where they would give stories and uh sometimes a supernatural life to noticeable and uh, memorable places in their immediate environment like oh this is a a giant rock and this is our story <laughs> of how this giant rock got here this one specifically or this or that tree is particularly taller than all the other ones this is a this is a little story of how that tree got to be so big and such and such and i really like uh that kind of stories those are really fun to me so it's very regional yeah <laughs> yeah it's very it's very regional yeah so uh indigenous people are obviously very very diverse in uh culture most of the time there are different stories different um uh different origin uh stories of how they came to be but the ute uh peoples is uh pretty fun <laughs> it, i i think it's it's very straightforward it's very simple uh where where you guys had very very deeply uh what's the word i'm looking for in depth there's a lot of depth here guys of stories yeah. <laughs> and but uh the the ute origin story is very straightforward very simple it's a, it's it's a very pandora's box kind of deal um, <laughs> in the ancient in the ancient times uh there was only the creator and the coyote and they both lived on earth they had come out of the light uh not so long ago that no one remembered when or how uh the earth was young and the time had and the time had come to really increase the population the creator gave a bag of wooden stick of carved wooden sticks to the coyote and said carry these to the hills and the valleys over there and he gave <laughs> and he gave and he gave he gave the coyote very specific instructions and told him what to do when he got there. He told him you got to remember this. This is a it's a big deal. You can't mess this up. <laughs> the bag cannot be opened under any circumstances until you reach these sacred grounds. Well, that's going to fail. <laughs> oh yeah. 100%. I I, I like your modern um, day storytelling already. <laughs> <laughs> the um Cody asks, what is in the bag? And the creator says, I will say no more. Now go on about your task. Hey, <laughs> just deal with this bag. <laughs> do it. Yeah, just do it. <laughs> um, but the coyote, being young and foolish, was absolutely consumed with curiosity. And as soon as he's over the first hill, out of sight, not even, not even a mile away almost, <laughs> out of the first hill... Uh, he just peeks in the bag. He's like, he just thinks, ah, it's not gonna hurt, right? I mean, it's just a bag, so it's, it's gonna see what's in it. So he opens it up, and as soon as he opens it up, a bunch of little people start coming out of it. And these people, they yelled and hollered in strange languages, right? And he tried to get them all. He tried to catch them, just run, <laughs> just started to grab them, throw them back in the bag. <laughs> but they ran everywhere, right? And so. <laughs> Once he got all the people he could, he noticed that there was only a fraction of what uh, of the amount that he originally started with. So uh, <laughs> he goes to the Sacred Valley and dumps those people out there. And there were a small number of these people, but these were the ones that would become the Ute people. Uh -huh. uh, Coyote then returned, and the and the creator had had told the creator that he completed the task. Uh, the the creator looks on Coyote's face and he just immediately just ah, you you did it didn't you you did like <laughs> you foolish thing you literally have no idea what you did <laughs> and Coyote immediately confesses and tells him I tried to catch them I was frightened 
They spoke in strange tongues I could not understand. Uh, but the creator says, Those you let escape will forever war with the Chosen Ones. They will be the tribes which will always be a thorn in the sides of the Utes. Uh, the Utes, even though they are few in number, will be the mightiest and most valiant of heart. The coyote, the, or the creator then cursed the coyote. You are an irresponsible meddler. From this time on, you are doomed to wander the earth on all fours forever as a night crawler. That's why so, coyotes. Oh, yeah, coyotes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's funny They're is, geeky. like, They're... if they just explained a little bit, like, hey, don't open the bag till we get here because it'll come bursting out full of people, like, he wouldn't know to open No, you gotta have faith in the creator. Yeah, you gotta just distrust the creator. Just don't look in the bag. Just take it to the place. <laughs> Do the thing. <laughs> I like I like how different it is from a Pandora's box. Is like again, I feel like the Native American people and the Greek people would have very little interaction. Oh, very much so. They would not have any interaction. <laughs> yeah, if any, well, I'm like the only thing I can imagine is like way back when the ice bridge was there. But I was like, was that before Greek stories were around? I. Probably, Possibly. more than likely. <laughs> that was like, no, nah, we're not gonna do that Pandora's box thing where you keep hope inside the box. It's just there's red, there's a just people in there, you know. <laughs> they speak weird. People. They're weird people. <laughs> well, I also do love that. From what you also explained, stories are told during during different seasons and things like that. It's interesting to think that Native Americans would constantly storytell by comparison to. Like Greek and Egyptian, they would use that as more like uh, this. This is why these things are happening versus Native Americans was constantly weaving stories with everything. Well, yeah. like the the fact that you said it's well, seasonal, Nathan, makes me think like, do you think the storyteller was just like, no, no, we can only do it this time of year because ki- you know how kids are, how they're like, <laughs> I really like again. this thing. I want to watch it over and over and over again. So the guy's like, no, 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 I can't. I can't tell you the story again until next year. It's, it's got to be this time. time. Yeah, it's prime time. You just didn't. Yeah, want I would to tell have, I would imagine story. that. I would imagine that those stories are uh, most of the time restricted to just the season uh, when they're supposed to be told. Because there's a lot of uh, superstition behind the stories and who hears them, um, and 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 when they're told as to. Pre- convey the proper message because a lot of the kind of hidden hidden little messages in these stories are a lot of them were life lessons or or things to just go by um you know like uh, kind of a lot like aesop's fables and yeah. such where they would have kind of just little life lessons hidden in them oh that's nice um when I when I always feel like there's a Native American story about the coyote being a trickster of some sort. I think that's, oh, the coyote that's is, like, is a huge trickster. That's I mean, his main that's just, staple. Yeah, that's the deal. Yeah, that is. He's always getting in trouble deal. and turning it into a coyote. <laughs> <laughs> there's a uh, there's a funny also a Ute legend that I was reading about a porcupine that had killed a buffalo. Oh, that's um, amazing. That's the best like, porcupine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, it it it, it it's kind of weird. It's a I believe it's about a a particularly taller tree, like I mentioned. Uh, there is a there's a porcupine, and he's coming along, and he comes across this river, and the river is too wide for him to get across. But he sees all the buffalo going by, and so he uh, the the buffalo are asking him, "Hey, can I can I take you to the other side? Can I give you a, you know do you a favor?" And the porcupine rejects every single one of them. He's like, "No, I don't want you. I want another buffalo." <laughs> and, uh, so he and so he waits until until he gets to the end and the last buffalo he says i'll do it and porcupine's cool awesome and uh the buffalo says all right well you know get on my back and porcupine says no i'm gonna fall into the water he's like, okay we'll climb up and ride on my horns porcupine says i'm gonna slide off and fall into the river and so the buffalo instead says okay how about you? How about you're in my stomach then? Yeah. <laughs> and so the porcupine agrees, and so the buffalo swallows him. And they get they're going across the river, and they finally get to the other side, more or less. And the buffalo says, "We've nearly crossed. You know, we're uh, we're about to get out of the we're about to get out. We're about to come out of the water." 
And uh, the, por the porcupine says, no, no, no. Um, I'm going to stay, go a little bit further. I'm going to stay in here a little bit more. And the buffalo, <laughs> so the buffalo walks out a little bit farther from the shore and he stops. And he's like, and he says, all right, come on out. The porcupine, in a real not cool move, uh, he hits the buffalo's heart with his heavy tail. Oh yeah. Yeah, so he pretty much, he, he, kills, he kills the buffalo, right? And so the porcupine comes out. And he just says, the porcupine just would, I, is, is wishing that he had something to carve up this uh, buffalo what? with. <laughs> right? So he kills him. He's like, <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm going yeah. to eat like, him like, now. Okay, well, I'm, yeah, I, I want to eat him, but I can't. I don't have anything to carve him up with. So Coyote nearby comes out. And as he is, is doing his little trickster ways, uh, here, um, here's a knife you can use to butcher with him. But um, let's see who gets to butcher it, you know, in a little game. Whoever can jump over the buffalo corpse uh, gets to butcher it. And so the porcupine tries, and he fails. The coyote does it, nails it. <laughs> so, so the coyote's carving up the buffalo, and he, go, the, he gives a big, he gives like the paunch of the buffalo, right, to the porcupine. He says, go wash in the river, but don't eat it. So <laughs> the porcupine takes it to the river, washes it, and it's, you know, this takes a little nibble, bites off a piece. Uh, the coyote sees this, and he immediately gets angry with him. So he picks up a club, and he kills the porcupine. Oh, my God. Him. <laughs> Hits him with a club, and, and puts him right next to the buffalo, right? And so he's like, great, now I have a buffalo and a porcupine. Goes home, tells his family, and says, hey, <laughs> come get it. We need to get, we need to go get this porcupine and buffalo that I killed. But before the porcupine had come out of the buffalo, he said magic words. He said, let a red pine tree here grow fast. And so um, at once a red pine tree began to grow under the buffalo body and under the porcupine. And it grew super tall, super fast. And all the, all the buffalo meat and the porcupine were at the top of this red, uh, uh. This red pine tree. And <laughs> the porcupine magically came back to life. He's probably playing dead. <laughs> Well, he's a porcupine. The, so. Yeah, naturally. Mm -hmm. The the coyote comes back. I'm gonna try to this. This is pretty good. It's long, but it's it's really fun. Uh, the coyote comes back, and they are like, "Where's all this meat?" The uh, the youngest of the coyote family looks up and says, "Oh, look, he's the porcupine's up there." And the the coyotes are the coyote family is begging for some scraps of meat. Like, come on, give us some. Give us a little bit of that meat. And he says, Porcupine says, okay, fine. Fine. Um, put, uh, go a little bit farther. Tell the, the, the youngest coyote to walk away a little bit. And so the youngest coyote walks away. And then he tells, and the porcupine tells them to put their hands up and get ready to, get, to catch some meat. And so the porcupine just immediately throws huge chunks of buffalo meat down. And he kills the coyote and those in the ring. <laughs> oh he, crush, he crushes the coyote family with uh, with meat, and and he climbs, so porcupine climbs down, and now he has a bunch of meat. And so he he takes he takes this young coyote into his care, feeds him, and um, just eventually you know takes care of him, and they become friends, and they help each other hunt buffalo for a, for a long time. Wow, I don't know what's more yeah. disrespectful is the the porcupine. Uh, treating the buffalo as a meat submarine or using the dead buffalo to kill other animals. Like I was going to say, the entire moral yeah. of that story is buffalo got screwed out of everything. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. But it's just, it's just one of those weird, uh, not weird, but like just fun kind of story where they're giving these animals very anthropomorphic qualities. And, yeah. To do things and <laughs> and then I I really enjoyed the end where it says yeah the, the porcupine raised this young coyote they became best friends and they, <laughs> and they uh, had a great time I guess oh my <laughs> I thought your story was gonna go the same way like the scorpion and the frog does like where the scorpion's like yo frog I need a ride and no, the frog was like it, yo it, don't stab me and he's like well kind of like that I might stab you. like that <laughs> takes a hard it takes a hard left turn. Takes a, a second act, if you will, with a coyote. It absolutely. In the, uh, <laughs> I mean, they gotta involve coyote at some point. In, in yeah, most yeah. Of the stories. I like the story could have stopped like, and the porcupine killed the buffalo. 
But he's, uh, nope. <laughs> but he said secret words, and the coyote wanted the buffalo, and he also wanted the porcupine, and then the red tree came out, and then and then he killed the coyote, and it was like it was, it was a it was a wild ride. I gotta be honest. I was gonna say, yeah, yeah. It could it could have mm-hmm. also been like a cautionary tale where then the buffalo would have drowned because he got stabbed in the heart, and then oh no, porcupine, blah blah, and then porcupine got out, drowned, and then the redwood tree would have grown out of his body. But no, no, they're like, no, nope, nope. we gotta involve coyote. He's got to do tricks or stuff. <laughs> And then we're going to kill him. And all of this was just to explain why the tree's so big, right? Yep. Yeah, and to not trust por- porcupines. Because they'll throw buffalo meat at you. And, or and, coyotes, I and guess. And stab your heart. <laughs> it gave. It really gave the people a connection to the land and to the environment around them, um, as well as the animals and, um, and trees and the flora and the fauna, if you will, having uh, a spirit or a life force. So it really just connected them to the environment, both um, both physically being around the environment and just in their minds have with this little story that they would make up. That's really interesting. Thanks for joining us, Nathan. Yeah, I Thanks. like it. Of course. Thanks, Nathan. It was uh, it was really fun. Um, if anybody would like to find more of these podcasts, obviously you can find us anywhere podcasts are. We're also on Discord, and you can find the link wherever social media is because we post it everywhere. Um. Be on the lookout next week on Wednesday for more of our lovely podcasts. And as always, stay researched. It's fun to know things.